Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 344 with Jordan Harbinger. I think you will dig this chat with Jordan, and it's a special one for me because Jordan's had a big impact on me as a podcaster and inspired a lot of the way I think and approach the craft in the show. So you're going to learn about confidence from Jordan, and you'll learn one, the secret strengths of introverts, two, why to ask for what you don't deserve, and three, how a post-it note can transform your nonverbal communication skills. So if you want to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you'll find it over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep344. Now here's Jordan's story. Jordan Harbinger has always had an affinity for social influence, interpersonal dynamics, and social engineering, helping private companies test the security of their communication systems and working with law enforcement agencies before he was even old enough to drive. Jordan has spent several years abroad in Europe and the developing world, including South America, Eastern Europe, and the Middle East, and speaks several languages. He's also worked for various governments and NGOs overseas, traveled through war zones, and been kidnapped twice. He'll tell you the only reason he's alive and kicking is because of his ability to talk his way into and out of just about any type of situation. Thanks to Jordan for spending some time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Jordan. Jordan, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate the opportunity. Oh, we know. I am excited to chat because uh, you've been an inspiration for me in podcasting. You kind of got me going on the three times a week, as a matter of fact. So we have you to blame for that. Right. So if you can't keep up with this podcast, it's largely my fault for also making it impossible to keep up with my podcast. Yeah. Well, one fun thing I learned about you from your IMDb profile, actually, oh, someone's a big deal, is that um, (laughs) (laughs) you're at one time an FBI informant. What's the scoop here? Yeah. So when I I was actually essentially a kid, um, when I was younger, I had figured out how to, do you remember green boxes on the side of the road that were like, Hey, what's that thing? I guess it's a phone thing. Remember those things? Kind of, but kind of, yeah. But what is it? (laughs) Not exactly a tourist attraction. So I, I figured out how to open those. And when I opened them, I saw these screws in there with wire pairs and I went, Oh, what are these? And I remember stopping on my bike once when I saw one of the linemen, the telephone company guys, not the, not the football guys uh-huh. opening that thing up. And I said, what are these? And he goes, Oh, every house in the neighborhood, all the phone wires, they run right into this box. So each of these pairs is someone's phone. And I said, Oh, in that little orange handset you're using, you can listen to the call. And he goes, well, I don't do that, but I can use it to test the line. And if someone's in the line, <laughs> when I put it on there, I get this little red light. I don't hear anything. And I said, Oh, okay. So I, decided that I was just going to get one of those and open that thing up with a because you needed a special wrench as if that's hard to find. Right. So I I would go and get that and open those up. And I started listening to conversations and I started to get really interested in people and really interested in the phone system because I could learn more about people through the phone system. And so I learned how to clone, which is sort of like hack in a general sense. I learned how to deal with that with cell phones, analog cell phones. And that was obviously quite interesting for me. So I started to clone these cell phones. And the FBI was like, hey, this is actually a crime. You should probably not do that. (laughs) But I started to tell them how certain technical things were done and they were interested in that. And then one day uh, I worked for a security company and that security company was in turn contracted by a really wealthy Detroit area billionaire. 
And I went into work one day at the security company and I was like, we we're talking about dating or something like that because my boss was like, hey, how the how the ladies treating you? You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I'm 16 years old. And I said, oh, you know, I'm actually meeting women on the internet. And he's like, what? Because this is 1995 or 1996, right? It's like, what are you talking about? So I would tell him how I would chat with essentially girls at that age on America Online. And he's like, oh, this is so fascinating. And so he would ask me about it every time I'd go to work. And eventually, I started working with the with him on on talking with the FBI about the the technology stuff. But then one time we started talking about the dating on America Online or the chatting on Instant Messenger, which we used at the time. And I started saying, you know, it's funny because I had this really sort of ambiguous unisex sounding username. Mm-hmm. And so some people on there thought I was a guy and some people on there thought I was a girl. And I always had to say like, oh yeah, I'm, you know, 16 year old guy, live in Troy, Michigan, whatever, whatever ASL. I was talking with people. <laughs> ASL, right? Age, sex, location. And so I eventually started to see people hitting me up and I was like, oh, hey, I'm a, I'm a guy. You don't want to be sending me like a, a picture of a rose or something. And they're like, oh, okay, sorry. And then some people were really creepy about it. And I was like, oh, there's all these guys on there that are like 40 that are totally okay with me being a 16-year-old boy. Like, what a bunch of weirdos. And I told my boss about this and he goes, yeah, that's not okay, man. Those are like sexual predators. We need to report these people to the police. And I said, well, all right. So we called the police. They had no idea what to do with it. So we contacted the FBI who had already sort of been talking about with the tech stuff. And they're like, yeah, we don't know really how to handle this. We have a cybercrime division in Washington, D.C., but no individual office, again, this is the 90s, has anything to do with computer crime because it's so advanced. You know, computer (laughs) crime back then was bank wires probably and like really advanced Matthew Broderick dialing into the Pentagon type of crime, not somebody chatting on America Online. There was no crime to be had there. There was no financial transactions. PayPal didn't exist. You couldn't bank online, et cetera. And so... I started talking about this and they said, look, show me what you're dealing with. Cause I, they thought, oh yeah, some perverts trying to get you to, you know, send a picture of them with your shirt off or whatever, who cares? And I sent them transcripts of these emails and other things in chat rooms. Cause remember back in the day, you had whole rooms of people talking and some of it was just really, really, really not cool. Like really gross yeah. and graphic. And it's like, who are these people? This is a 14 year old girl. Look, here's where she says to another user how old she is and where she lives. And then this is where this guy says he's 45 and works at like Radio Shack, you know? And so I started to send those things in by fax, of course, to the FBI. Mm. And they went, oh, wait a minute. This is like really this is really bad because there were guys saying like, yeah, I'll come over to your parents' house when they're not there and take pictures of you and we'll put, you know, you'll be a model, like that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so they started saying, look, we can't ask you to do anything, but the more of this we get, the better our case is going to be against some of these users when we go to a judge for a warrant and try to sort of look at this person's email and all that stuff. And so I started just going into chat rooms And I even made different screen names and I would get into chats with these people and stuff like that. And I'd fax all the transcripts to the FBI. And we caught a bunch of pedophiles. Yeah. We caught a ton. Yeah, we caught a bunch. Because what I was in Michigan, so what we would do, essentially the the crime itself online was multi-state, which brought it to the FBI's jurisdiction. But what, what, what we ended up doing was Toledo, Ohio was pretty close to the southern border of Michigan. And so the ruse at that point was, oh, I'm going on vacation with my family to Toledo. We're going to be at the Holiday Inn in this place. And then the guy would drive from Michigan to Toledo and the FBI, the local PD would be there. And they'd be like, well, you just traveled across state lines to uh, 
engaged in inappropriate conduct with a minor. So now you're ours. Mm-hmm. You're not you're not Toledo PD. You're not Detroit PD or whatever suburb PD. You're FBI, and we have all the chats. Yeah, and it was just like boom. And Chris Hansen says, "Why don't you take a seat over there?" Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Whenever when I first saw that show, I went, "Oh yeah." They've been doing this for a long time. Like, this is not a new operation. In fact, as far as I know, we were one of the first people ever to do this because if I had, t- if I had to talk to Washington, D.C., FBI, just to tell them how pedophiles were on America Online in 96, I don't think there was a whole lot of activity in that area at that time. Right, yeah. If you're like the league expert. <laughs> yeah, if a 16-year-old boy who, with a dial-up modem is the lead expert on, like, AOL... Uh, sex crimes, I guess you would call it, then there's not, there's not a whole lot of expertise in the area. Yeah. Well, Jordan, you are full of interesting stories. You share a number of them along with guests on the Jordan Harbinger show. So tell me what's your show kind of fundamentally all about? Yeah. So what I do on the Jordan Harbinger show or what we do as a team is we interview amazing, brilliant people, in my opinion, and we study their thoughts, their actions, their habits, and then we have them teach their ways to the audience. So for example, I had, I just earlier today interviewed the former head of the CIA and NSA, General Hayden. And I said, look, you know, how are you making these tough decisions? How are you balancing people's freedom with the fact that you have to defend us against terrible people? Or I'll talk to Larry King and I'll say, tell us about conversational skills. You've had 60,000 interviews. You must've picked up a couple of tips along the way. And I'll have them teach those skills to the listening audience. And then every episode has worksheets. So it's really practical. It's not just like, wow, gee, that was so inspiring. Thanks for coming on. It's like, no, here's five things you can now do to become better at conversations, networking, uh, body language, persuasion, influence, etc. That's awesome. Well, clearly we have much synergy between mm-hmm. our shows. And so it's so good to have you here. And and I've learned a lot from you, you know, particularly in the realms of confidence, likability, you know, relationships, communications, like that universe. So now you're going to be, if you will, the Larry King is to interviewing, Jordan Harbinger is to likability, confidence stuff. So let's go there. You know, What's sort of your secret sauce or your flavor behind? It seems like, if I may, you know, following you for a while, it's like you're kind of a dork. I say that in the nicest way. Yeah. No, you don't have to. Not kind of. I mean, it's (laughs) well established, my friend. And yet you're also super freaking cool at the same time. And you've got a real good vibe going, which serves you well as a, you know, an interviewer and broadcaster, but I'm sure in many other circumstances. So kind of what's going on in your head in terms of, where your seeming abundance kind of confidence and self-assuredness is coming from. Where does my confidence come from? Well, yeah. So it's definitely not something that I just woke up one day and was like, I'm good at this. I certainly, it's funny. People who know, who've known me my whole life, they go, it's so funny that you ended up being a talk show host interviewer. It's just comedy. Because when I was a kid, I was an only child. So imagine I spent a lot of time watching TV sitcoms, first of all, which actually is where I learned a lot of my cheeseball sense of humor. And because half of pe- people who know me for a long time will be like, oh yeah, I remember you watching The Fresh Prince for you know seven years straight or whatever, and just talking and being funny in that way. Or like 
I sort of have a humor evolution from perfect strangers all the way on up to like Seinfeld or friends, you know, the highest echelon of evolution. the highest <laughs> echelon of culture naturally. <laughs> but it, the reason that happened was because I could either st- sit there and watch baseball with my dad who like, he's a smart guy, but he's an engineer. So his communication is primarily grunting and then getting frustrated when you don't understand exactly what he means. Uh, and then my mom who loves reading, and I'm, I'm an only child, so I'm just sitting there like, oh my gosh, you know, I've, I've got a, I, I'm not doing a whole lot of talking, right? And then when I was in school, I just found that either things were so boring that I would get in trouble, and then I had like the typical middle school, I wouldn't call it social anxiety any more than a normal kid has, but it, it, instead of me being, acting up and trying to be one of the in crowd, I just kind of was like, I'm just not going to talk. If I'm invisible, then nobody will bother me. You know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I did that for years and that persisted even through a little bit of high school. Then in college, I studied really hard. I wasn't concerned with partying and stuff because I thought, you know, this, you get one shot at this. Uh, And then I went to law school and not exactly known for its outgoing, super social, well-adjusted people, especially at the, at that level where I was studying. And then I worked on wall street. And so the fact that I was able to then leave that and develop a talk show host and interviewer skill set was really a large pivot, but it wasn't as big of a jump as I think a lot of introverts think, because when we're introverted, and as we know from new science now, things like Susan Cain and her book and her work, Introverts are actually better at forming relationships and generally having conversations with people that are meaningful because, and I say we because technically I'm still an introvert. I don't think that's something you really shake. We think more about what we're going to say before we say it. We think about other people's feelings. What repercussions is this going to have? How's it going to make the other person feel? How is this going? What conversation should this be like? What, what effort do I want to put into this conversation to make it worthwhile? That's the type of thing that introverts think of, which is why we seem quiet and reserved. Mm -hmm. We are indeed, but also we're not just talking because like, well, if I talk a lot, people will think I'm cool. We don't have that. And if we talk enough, we go, oh, I just want to go home and not do anything. Whereas an extrovert says, oh, I've been working all day. I just want to go out and have drinks and chit chat. It's like, we don't rest that way, introverts. Mm -hmm. So the pivot seems strong, but really it's just a use of a skill set that I had for a long time. I was always the guy that people would ask for advice. I was always the people, I was always the guy people would say, you know, I trust you to keep this secret for me. My parents are getting divorced. And I'm like, we're in third grade. Why are you telling me this? You know, that was the kind of thing that I always had. And I think it was me putting people at ease because I wasn't necessarily fronting all the time. I wasn't trying to be cool. I was just me because I didn't have the skills to be anybody else, right? Or, or even try to fake it. And that I think is why I ended up in this particular niche, uh, doing this particular gig. But I, I do think that all of us, especially if we think, oh, well, I'm working at this company and I'm never going to be this outgoing or this person that, or this type of person that's going to be a manager or an outgoing leader. I think we should take a second look at that because a lot of times, the things that we think about us are a disadvantage are often symptoms of an advantage that we have that maybe we haven't explored yet. Similar to the introvert thing. Oh, I'm too quiet. I can, I could never be a radio talk show host interviewer. Well, that's not really true. All of the characteristics that make you quiet, you know, you think before you talk, that's Mm -hmm. actually really beneficial to somebody who wants to have a meaningful conversation in any format, whether you're a writer 
or you're speaking on a microphone, the shyness, yes, you'll have to get over eventually, but shyness and being introspective and quiet are actually totally different things. Yeah, I love that good stuff there. And it's funny, I am actually a certified Myers-Briggs practitioner. So I, I train people on this all the time. And there's a lot of aha moments in terms of, you know, we sort of assume or project onto the other person, oh, if I'm extroverted and I'm quiet, it means, you know, I'm bored, I'm disengaged, I don't care, whatever. And therefore, that person is thinking, feeling the same thing. It's like, oh, contraire, you know, as you very nicely articulated, the introvert is kind of operating on all of these maybe deeper levels of consideration about what would be the implication if I say that and the repercussions to the other person? How are they thinking and feeling about that? So that's very well said. And I want to dig into a little bit of that repercussion piece when it comes to thinking about maybe if folks are overly cautious or worried about offending or being rejected or rubbing people the wrong way if they speak up about something. What's your take on how to overcome you know, those sorts of fears and anxieties? Sure. So I think for a lot of people, I won't say it never goes away. I will say that it's slow to go away. And it doesn't, it's not like one day you're working on this and you you finally feel like, ah, oh, this is gone now. It's more like you stop noticing it, mm-hmm. if that distinction makes sense. And the way that this works will be something like rejection therapy, for example, where, you know, you're, you go and some of the drills that I give clients from the Jordan Harbinger show or for advanced human dynamics, which is our training arm, are things like, I'll point them to the negotiation episodes that we did where most people are using that to get a raise in their salary or they're using that those types of skills to get something else for work or business. But uh, I'll also say, look, next time you go to Starbucks, ask for a discount. And people go, oh God, I can't do that. It's awkward. It's weird. So what though, right? You're at an airport. You're at an airport. You're never going to see that barista again. It's not the one that's a block away that you go to every day where you might actually face consequences, ask for the discount. And the worst they can say is no. And you have to work up courage, of course, to do this kind of thing. But as you do that and you experience positive results, which most people do, you'd be surprised how many places, by the way, have some sort of discount button that automatically knocks 10% off the price because, oh, you're in the office building above us, 10% off. Oh, the manager's standing next to me and that's totally fine because she's seen you before, 10% off. That happens all the, oh, you brought your own cup, 10% off, that kind of thing always cafes, restaurants, that happens all the time. So as we experience positive results, we start to say, well, wait a minute. If I got that by asking, what else can I get by asking? And we used to have all of these different sorts of drills to lead up to that. And I won't spend too much time on that because you know I don't want to take over the whole show with it. But a lot of what these do is they build small pieces of situational confidence that then lead to greater confidence in other areas. So if you are able to ask for what you want or a benefit when you actually don't deserve one. Like you do not deserve a, a discount on that coffee. You just, you <laughs> but know. I'm so adorable, Jordan. <laughs> uh, but I'm like, you, if you ask for that and you get it, then you start to think, well, wait a minute. There's a whole world of possibility that doesn't make me an entitled jerk for exploring. And once you start to do that, then you can build on to bigger and bigger things. And when you frame things in the in the way of negotiation, like, look, most people do deserve to get paid more than they actually are. Or I should say they're bringing more value than they're actually paid. I think in many ways you get paid what you negotiate in certain corporate structures, not necessarily what your value is. And once you start to realize that, you think, well, wait a minute. There's somebody else, because chances are, think about this right now. You're working at a corporation, if, if that's what you're doing, and I know a lot of your audience is doing that. 
there's probably somebody at your same level that's making more than you and you have no idea. That's right. (laughs) And the reason you have no idea is because HR cut them a deal when they negotiated with that person. And part of it was, I will not tell anyone else what I'm making. That's right. And that is illegal in some countries. Fun fact. I didn't know that. Oh, really? it is. You cannot do that in certain countries for the very reason that it, you know, is a disservice to workers, to employees who are wage earners. But business owners and, you know, HR folks in the US, you know, it's to their advantage. There was an awesome Adam Ruins Everything, if you've ever seen that show, yeah. episode about this. And I was like, right on, Adam, preach it. So yeah, it's a little bit kind of taboo, I guess, in the US to um, discuss those things. But it's generally to the employee's benefit when they do. Interesting. So yeah, I'm vibing with what you're saying there. And I'm also vibing with that statement there. Woof. Ask for what you don't deserve. And I'm thinking, I don't do that very often. No. And I'm wondering if it's because uh, of my sense of like justice or rightness or fairness is being compromised. But, uh, you know, set me straight, Jordan. Um, You know, why and how is it cool to ask for what you don't deserve? It's social pressure, right? The reason we don't do it, right? We have some unwritten rules that say, look, and and I'm not saying walk into Walmart and then walk out with a lawn chair and be like, can I have this for free? They're going to be like, no. And they're going to apply pressure and turn the screws. And we're not doing this thing where we're going to a local mom and pop restaurant, eating a full meal and saying, I'm going to pay you half of what you ask for for this. You're just Mm -hmm. giving people grief at that point. But when you're talking about, hey, can I have a discount on this coffee? Nobody sat down and went, look, this is the morally acceptable price for us to charge for this cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. They went, people are willing to pay $5 for this mochaccino, charge these morons $5 for that mochaccino. So if you ask, or if that's a real thing. So if you Mm -hmm. ask for a discount, Starbucks is still profiting handsomely off of you. They want you to come back. They might do this all the time. There's a reason they give away free stuff all the time. There's a reason they have all these rewards programs. They incentivize that way. You're not stealing from them by asking because you're giving them a choice. They're fully allowed to say no. Right. You know, it's not when they say no, you walk up to the shelf with all the ceramic mugs on it and knock it over. Like you're not doing that, right? You're just walking up to the counter and saying, can I have a discount on that? And sometimes they just go, sure. Yeah. Or or you say, can I have a discount on that? I've had a really long day and I would love to just have one thing go right. And they go, Mm. yeah, sure. My pleasure. It is their pleasure. You know, you're giving them an opportunity to delight you. And that's worth something. You're like, you're doing them a favor by asking for that. That's my reframe. I'm rolling with it. And frankly, it's often worth about 15 cents. So it really Mm -hmm. doesn't matter that much, but it's nice to have anyway. And the reason we ask for what we don't necessarily deserve in those instances is because, not because great, I'm saving a quarter on a cup of coffee. The reason we do that is because Imagine how much easier it then becomes to ask for something that you do deserve. I know I'm underpaid by five grand a year. Oh, but I don't want to, I don't want to make my manager's manager angry. And I, I know that the thing, times are tight right now. No, this is a negotiation. You deserve more than what you're getting. Other people at other offices are getting paid more for doing the same amount of work and they have better benefits. You should be leveraging that. And by asking for small little things, and again, coffee's not necessarily going to lead to a big raise for you, but it can over time compound and you will find, not only are you enjoying some benefits of that, but you gain a sense of control over things 
namely your environment that you may not have otherwise had. And then it starts to lead to the idea that, well, wait a minute, if I can negotiate a discount on a cup of coffee that I don't deserve, then maybe I can negotiate the $5,000 raise that would be a qualitative lifestyle difference for Mm -hmm. me that I actually do deserve, that other people are getting that I'm not because I'm nice, too nice. Yeah, I'm digging it. I'm digging it. Boy, time is already flying here, but Jordan, I got to get from you a couple, if I may, pro tips sure. in terms of being likable or, or charismatic or kind of winning people overness, if that's a word. You know, what are some of like the top foundational principles or tips that you share in that realm? Sure. So I used to be one of those like, well, look people in the eye, I have a firm handshake and you know, positive, and I still do the positive, upright, confident body language thing. In fact, I'll give you guys a, uh, why don't I give you a body language drill? This is always a nice, easy one that people can learn in an audio only format. I, I would say some of the major benefits come from developing relationships and networks that really help other people because you can have the greatest nonverbal communication of anybody in the whole world. But if I've thrown you three, four show guests, or I've introduced you to somebody who you ended up marrying or got you a job, you're just going to like me a little bit more than the guy who has a firm handshake and good eye contact. At least I hope so. So the body language and nonverbal stuff does have its place though. And I think for a lot of folks, especially I used to think this way as well, we often think, huh, well, my first impression happens when I open my mouth. So I got to have cool, fun, entertaining things to say. And this really actually is not true. We know that we form our first impressions non-verbally before the other person even has the opportunity to open their mouth. And if you don't believe me, next time you go to the mall, you're walking down the street, listen to the little voice in your head, not the one that says, walk faster, it's cold outside, but the one that says, that person is small, that person is tall, ooh, that person is kind of scary, should I cross the street? No, Mm -hmm. I'm just being weird they're fine. Oh, wow, this person's attractive. I wonder if that voice, you're making judgments about people constantly. We're evolved to do that. It's something that keeps us safe and has kept us safe for millennia. So we do this. It's not bad. It doesn't mean you're a judgmental jerk. We do this. Now, what this means for us is that our first impression is already made well before someone walks up and says, hey, can I borrow a quarter for the payphone? I got to catch the bus, whatever. That, that is not the first impression. That's the second impression, generally speaking. And this happens just as well in corporate environments at a, at a mixer or something like this. And we generally form that first impression within milliseconds. As soon as someone becomes a blip on our radar, we form some judgments of them based on their nonverbal communication. And so what we want to do is make sure that our first impression, nonverbal first impression, is upright, positive, confident, friendly, open, all these nice positive adjectives that we can throw out there. And the way that we do that is essentially, and unless you're driving right now, you can follow along with me, stand up straight, chin up, chest up, shoulders back. And you don't have to exaggerate this. This is not like Superman pose or anything. It's just sort of upright, positive, confident, friendly, put a smile on your face. We want to do this every time we walk through a doorway because that's generally when people notice us is when we walk through a doorway. And so, of course, the problem with that is we walk through doorways all day. So you're going to walk through a doorway five seconds from now, forget to do this, and then everything goes to heck. So grab a stack of post-it notes, maybe those little ones that have absolutely no use other than what I'm about to tell you because they're too small. And uh, if you don't have those, go grab a pack of that from the office supply room or go to the drugstore and grab it. Stick them up at eye level 
on the doorway. You don't even have to write anything on it. What this is going to do is it's called a pattern interrupt in uh, psychology slash hypnosis speak. And what that is, is you look at your doorway, you don't see anything because you, you walk through it all day. But you look at your doorway, you see a hot pink post-it note at eye level in the doorframe and you go, what is that? Oh, right. The doorway drill that Jordan was talking about. So you walk through that doorway and you straighten up you reset your body to that open, upright, positive, confident body language. And you do this in your own home. You do this in your office. You do this when you walk to the break room, the conference room. I don't think anybody's going to be too suspicious of a post-it note on a doorframe in an office. They're not going to snag it away on you. <laughs> yeah. And if they do, you just replace it because they keep on refilling that office supply container, don't they? Mm -hmm. Or you put a little note there and you write on it, do not remove. And it'll be there for like five years. And people will go, what is that thing? Like, what the heck is this? Yeah. I don't know. Don't touch it though. It's a do not remove. <laughs> Thanks, MGMT. So the management obviously put it up there. And, and so when you do that, you start to reset your nonverbals. And what this does is it trains you to reset throughout the day that open, upright, positive, confident body language. And when, within three to six weeks, you're not going to need the post-its anymore. You're going to have that nonverbal communication going all the time. And what this does, this is great because then the next time you go to a meeting, a mixer, a conference, uh, or Starbucks, whatever it is, you have your body language and nonverbal communication set the right way. And when people form those first impressions of you based on that nonverbal communication, they start to treat you differently. And when people start to treat us differently, we actually start to behave differently. And there's a lot of science, which I probably don't need to go into, that proves this. And I, I don't think anybody would even argue with that anyway. And when we start to be treated differently and we start to behave differently, then essentially the core of who we are begins to change for the better. We start to behave as if we are indeed entitled to smiles and that, that coffee discount. You're worth smiles, Jordan. You're worth smiles. <laughs> You're worth smiles. You're worth people turning around and looking at us and actually being, you know, pleasantly surprised that somebody friendly walked in. You're, you're worth it. And that trains us to behave differently, which is a, a higher level of social status than we're typically accustomed to. And that's powerful. It's kind of like getting taller. And if I could commission a study, I would want to compare the social status equated with being tall or wealthy with the social status equated with high value charismatic social behavior because there is science to this effect, not using the doorway drill, of course, that shows that people who are out, outgoing, friendly, positive, and confident do enjoy higher levels of income, larger networks, more career satisfaction. So the idea that you can get that from post-it notes is pretty powerful. Yeah, I was just going to say it. It all starts with a hot pink, tiny post-it note. That's right. That's right. That's so good. And I love it because you know we had BJ Fogg on the show talking about tiny habits. And that's a potent tiny habit, right? It takes yes. mere seconds to do. You have a clear trigger and it has you know highly leveraged results, you know, flow on, on the back end. So that is a slam dunk. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, tell me, Jordan, any really top things you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about a few of your favorite things? Oh, um, you know, I love these little drills for networking and relationship development. I think relationships are the most important lever in business. And me having had to restart my business in the Jordan Harbinger show, within the last six months, again, after doing my other show for 11 years, and bringing that, this new show, The Jordan Harbinger Show, to 3.8 million downloads a month and already in the top 100, the relationships are what did it. Like people go, well, you're really good at what you do. Thanks a lot. But really, it's the network. And so I want to just underline, highlight, emphasize the fact that relationship development is 
one of the most crucial skills that anyone can build. And uh, at the end of the show, maybe we can plug some of the drills and exercises that I've developed similar to the doorway drill that will help with that and people can go and grab those. But I want to highlight that because I think people put networking off until later. They're like, oh, well, I'm just, I got a new boss right now and I got to bust my tail for this and then I'll, I'll worry about networking. Or, you know, I don't need a new job right now. I'm really satisfied where I am. So I don't really need to network inside my industry or outside it. I have, I want to spend that time doing other things. And I understand those arguments, but they are erroneous because the problem is you cannot make up for lost time when it comes to building relationships, you have to dig the well before you're thirsty because at the time you eventually need that network, you are far too late. And that's a tough lesson to learn in real time. Mm, that's good, thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Oh, sure, something that I find inspiring. Uh, I used to really love fortune favors the bold and it sounds great in Latin, mm -hmm. but that sort of sounds a little bit bro these days. <laughs> so I'm going to share that quote with the caveat that what that really means, apropos our earlier conversation, is that people who ask for things that they want or they think they deserve are the ones that get them. Seldom do things sort of flutter down and land in our lap. That's usually the, <laughs> the right place, the right time, a whole lot of luck. And I really do like the idea that fortune favors the bold. And I think that Abraham Lincoln even had something like, or this is one of those internet quotes where it's totally not Abraham Lincoln, mm -hmm. um, but it's credited as him slash Mark Twain. Uh, but I think he said something like, good things come to those who wait, but it's only what's left over by those who hustle. Mm, gotcha. And I love that one as well. It's very similar. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite book? Favorite book? Oh gosh, I read so much, but I really love Extreme Ownership, which is, of course, is written by Jocko Willink, who's a Navy SEAL, and it's full of these kind of cool battle stories from Ramadi in Iraq. But really what extreme ownership is about is figuring out what part you've played in pretty much any failure or any problem. So if your team fails and your boss totally misled everyone and half the team quit and it was just you and one other person and that person got the black plague and had to stay home <laughs> for two months and you're the one that did all the work, you still look at what part you played and what you could do differently later because externalizing blame or faults or anything is always, even if it's 100% valid, like, look, we failed because I had to do this alone with no help. Well, okay, that's the main reason why you failed. The other reason is, well, you decided that it was gonna be impossible six months ago, so you kind of resigned yourself to failure. Well, yeah, but it was never gonna work. That doesn't matter. Extreme ownership means look all the way at every facet, all the way up and down the food chain and figure out what you could have done differently. Because if you don't do that, then basically you didn't learn anything other than woe is me. Yeah. Right? Awesome. And how about a uh, favorite habit? Favorite habit? Every day I wake up, and this is also in my networking drills that I'll share later in the show. Every day I wake up and I usually have an alarm for around 10 a.m. I, I don't wake up at 10 a.m., FYI. I wake up around 5.30, but I have the alarm set for around 9 or 10 a.m., depending on what time zone I'm in. And I scroll all the way down to the bottom of my text messages and I text the five people. Those are the texts that are like two years old where it's like, hey, where are we meeting for lunch? And you're at some conference in Washington, D.C. And those are people you haven't spoken to <laughs> since that lunch. And I'll text them and I'll say, 
hey, it's been a long time. I hope this is still your number. This is Jordan Harbinger. Just wanted to check in. What are you working on lately? Uh, where where can I be of service? Would love to touch base with you. Some Something along those lines. And you make sure you sign your name so that you avoid who, new phone who dis. Mm-hmm. And you also say no response necessary if you're really busy. And that actually increases your response rate by about 30% from about 40 something to 70 something. And the reason is because then when people build urgency, cause they're trying to sell something there, yeah. it's usually like contact me right away. And so of course when you get a text like that, you're thinking, wait, I haven't talked with Pete for like two years. Is it, is it Herbalife or is it Scientology? What is this going to be? Right. <laughs> and doTERRA. <laughs> yeah. Right. But if someone says, Hey, look, I, I know you might be really busy. So no urgency. You don't have to get back to me if you don't have time. People are like, Oh, well, Clearly, this isn't somebody trying to be like once in a lifetime urgent opportunity. It's like, hey, look, you know, get back to me if you want. People usually go, oh, all right, this is a social thing. And so they'll do it. And I do this every pretty much every day. And some people don't reply and other people do. And you end up with the craziest opportunities. You know, you'll reengage a couple of people. Nothing will happen. But then once a week, twice a week, someone will say, hey, Jordan, you know, it's funny you texted me because I'm about to walk into a meeting where we're going to decide on our speakers for this year's annual corporate retreat. Would you, do you speak? Would you be down to do that? It's in Hawaii. It's not a bad deal. The fee is really low, but we'll pay you to go out there. And you go, sure. Yeah, I'd love to do that. And let me tell you, I've gotten some crazy opportunities as a result, including literally trips to Hawaii to go speak at corporate retreats because that person just happened to get that text the morning before the meeting. And I guarantee you, they were not thinking of me as a candidate for that before they walked in the door and before that text came in. So it's a numbers game. It costs you nothing. Half the time you're at an airport gate, at Starbucks, taking a break, lounging, waiting for your coffee machine to finish pouring something. I mean, we're talking minutes per day. Oh, I love that take. And um, especially the non-urgent piece. It reminds me of the one time I sent a low importance email and I got a ton of replies. <laughs> it's like, yeah. what exactly is this low importance message? I'm very intrigued. It's funny. So good. Well, Jordan, tell me, do you have a final challenge or call to action or if folks want to learn more, or get in touch, what would you point them to? Yeah, so a lot of the drills that I'm talking about, so the texting re-engagement stuff, the the doorway drill that I mentioned, I've got dozens of these and I give them away for free at advancedhumandynamics.com slash level one, advancedhumandynamics.com slash level one. Or if you just go to the Jordan Harbinger Show in any podcast app, you can hear me talk with brilliant people. But level one will teach you a lot of this amazing stuff and it will change your life. And again, it's all free just to be super clear. It's not something I'm selling. These are the habits I wish I had like 15 years ago because I started doing them about 10 years ago. And I just think the amount that I got, the benefit I got from doing this for so long has been so enormous that any day that I didn't do this, it's kind of like, dang, right? So... I highly encourage people to do this now because it it doesn't matter where you are in your career, whether you're new or or this is something you've been doing for a while. There's a lot here. And I teach the same stuff to military, intelligence agencies, corporations, and I'm giving a lot of it away there at advancedhumandynamics.com slash level one. Beautiful. Well, Jordan, thank you for that and taking the time. This has been a, a whole lot of fun. I wish you and the Jordan Harbinger show all the luck in the world. Thanks, Pete. I appreciate it. Something that really stuck with me in this conversation with Jordan was the asking for what you don't deserve. And it's like, man, why don't I do that? What's that about? You know, and I think part of it is a matter of reciprocity. Like, am I willing to do that for them? And, and maybe the answer is yes. And so that's cool. You know, be liberated. Go ahead and ask there. 
Other times it's just sort of fear that's kind of masquerading and trying to get some rationalization, justification. But I dig that reframe we discussed about giving them the opportunity to delight you. It's sort of like a gift. Like if you are a nonprofit organization, you get donations. You didn't deserve those. You didn't earn those. But it's a gift and it's a joy to be a giver. And it's a joy to give that opportunity to someone to be a giver. And another reframe I put on that is about making the most of each conversation or opportunity. So maybe you don't deserve it, but if you don't ask for it, it's a wasted chance. And if you do ask for it, you know, man, you're living out loud and taking every opportunity. And it was really funny. One thing that really made a difference for me, coincidentally, is just after this episode, I was on the Amtrak and I was going via train to my home in central Illinois. And so my mom was going to pick me up from the Champaign station and take me on over to Danville. And I overshot it. Oops. I guess I wasn't paying enough attention. Totally missed my stop. And so there was another town called Mattoon, which would be the next stop. And it's made more than half an hour away or thereabouts. And so they're clicking tickets and they say, hey, where are you headed? And I say to Champagne. Like, yeah, but where are you going? It's like, Champagne. Like, well, we just passed Champagne. It's like, you're kidding me. It's like, how did that even happen? I was paying attention. I So I thought, totally missed it. And then the conductor said, well, there's another train headed north, kind of the opposite direction from Mattoon. And so you can hop on over when we intersect, like in the middle. And this was nuts. So they actually stopped two trains. Over a hundred people total were delayed by about five-ish minutes as they came to a complete stop. I hopped off the train, scurried over to the other train and went backtracked it north a little bit to Champaign. Wow. Talk about what you don't deserve. I didn't deserve that. I was humbled. I was honored. I was appreciative. And she proactively volunteered it for me. So I thought that was super cool of her, the Amtrak conductress. So props, props to her. And I was honored. I kind of wondered and felt really terrible about inconveniencing those, you know, 100 plus people. But I think that was a good acid test for me in terms of asking for what you don't deserve. It's like, you know, am I going to inconvenience a hundred people? to the same extent to which I am being convenienced, as in the case of the Amtrak? Probably not. <laughs> and thusly, you could feel pretty good about it because even in that circumstance, uh, this conductor felt fit to do that, to help the one. And I was the one at that time, and that was uh, super cool. And so a little bit of food for thought. Again, if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep344. If you haven't already, I encourage you to push that subscribe button. If you do, you'll hear from our next guest. It is Bob Nelson, and he is laying out what makes the difference in terms of engagement. Hint, it's largely about appreciation, but he has studied it exhaustively. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 